going on, everyone? It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. My name is Todd Golden, here with my brother Matt Golden. Matt, what's going on on this uh, pre-Thanksgiving? Well, it actually is Thanksgiving Day as we record this, sort of, so... Um, actually, where I live, it isn't. Blah, 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 blah. Where I am, it is. So shut up. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's late at night, the night before Thanksgiving. Uh, what are your turkey day plans? Um. Well, I'm not making turkey. Um, I'm doing something else. Um, I'm basically, probably making steak or something like that. I mean, I, I don't really like turkey that much. So... Okay, I was not aware of that. <laughs> Turkey, do you like white meat or dark meat? Uh, I mean, it's about the same to me. Hell, yeah. You know, when the <laughs> Pilgrims came over to Massachusetts, um, a lot of people don't know that some of them also had steak. Yeah, they, uh, I mean, they, they probably had cows. I mean, so... They had steak and rice or, or not rice aroni they had a uh, stovetop stuffing not like the stuffing you actually get out of a turkey they had boxes of it in the mayflower right and yeah. uh, a1 steak sauce and um they and they decided to text each other um from the ship over to the mainland yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it was it was quite a quite a happening so anyway, this week was my choice, and we went a little cray-cray, I guess. Um, I decided to pay tribute to my honeymoon by using the French chart, La Chart, as I guess it's called, uh, from November Actually, it's La Chart. Whatever. I can't <laughs> say French words. So um, this is from November 27th, 1999, which on that actual date, I was in Paris with my then new wife. Um, and one of the things I remember about going there was some of the music that I heard, um, as we were out and about, we heard quite a, quite a few different things, honestly. I mean, in the hotel room, I remember we had a little speaker on the side of the bed, uh, kind of like an old school hotel, like radio or something, I guess, and heard a lot of jazz out of that, um, kind of 50 style jazz. But when we were out and about, heard a lot of electronic music that you wouldn't hear in American, you know, street scenes necessarily. It's like if you went to a club in the United States and heard dance, like hardcore dance music, you'd hear that coming out of speakers in like stores in France. And it seemed hmm. exotic to me. It was kind of cool. I'm not really into that kind of music, but it fit the time and place. So kind of a when in Rome type thing. And, um, However, doing this chart, once I actually started, and this is the album chart, by the way, from that date, uh, I don't know that there's many examples of what I heard, which I'm kind of disappointed about that. At least on my side of the chart, there wasn't. So, yeah, I didn't really notice too much like that either. I mean, for me, it was like mainly like pop oriented stuff, like not dance pop, but like actual pop singers. Yeah, and and. And we'll delve into it in my countdown, but a lot of, uh, um, you know, music that's and this would make sense, considering this is a French chart, that would be music specific to France. So, uh, right. So it's interesting, but not quite what I expected. So we'll probably burn through this one. Uh, OK, but why don't we get started with you? Number 40 is Frank McKell or Michael uh, with Olympia 99. 
I've, actually, it's Olympia Kashravandi's Nuff. That's not what my chart says. It says Olympia 99. Well, 99 is Kashravandi's Nuff. Oh, shut <laughs> up. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, Frank Michaels, an Italian-born Belgian pop crooner. Uh, his real name is Franco Gabelli, and he looks vaguely like Brian Ferry. Um, he was a TV repairman before he went into music. And this is a live album. It was recorded at the Olympia in Paris, which is kind of the Parisian equivalent of Radio City Music Hall. And um, this album is somewhat obscure. Um, this was its peak on the chart, and Frank Michael's own website doesn't even acknowledge its existence. Um, but luckily for me, the whole thing was filmed and put on YouTube. And it's typical pop crooner stuff. Um, everyone in the audience looks like they're at least 65. And it looks and sounds like something you'd see on PBS during Pledge Week. Um, he's Francis uh, Daniel O'Donnell. Um, I, I couldn't remember Daniel O'Donnell's name. He's Always on like the pledge weeks. Um, so I just Googled Irish singer PBS and got him. But anyway, this isn't great. So, okay. We're <laughs> off to an awesome start. Yes, yes. Um, number 39 for you is The Cranberries with Barry the Hatchet. I don't recall hearing this one in Paris at all, though oddly enough, the bonus tracks from this album, which they released bonus tracks only like two years after this was put out, but. Um, and the later iterations of it contain live performances from 1999 in Paris. So for whatever that's worth, but this went to number 13 in the United States, which goes to show how out of touch I already was by then, because I have zero recollection of this album at all. Um, Pitchfork uh, named the storm Torgerson album cover among the worst of all time. It features a naked person crouched in fear underneath what looks like to be a big vagina kite in the sky, which actually yeah, uh, yeah. it's a 1999 vintage Photoshop eye in the sky, but it doesn't look like that at first glance. So this is like a Pink Floyd 70s-ish album cover that went wrong. It does look pretty stupid, but... It does, um, yeah, yeah. I did listen to a couple tracks off of this and the Cranberries. I mean, it was all right, but... Um, for whatever reason, in our taste, although I guess the number 13 spot would say otherwise, the, seems like people had moved on from the Cranberries by 1999 for us. But, And I guess, judging yeah, by... Yeah, I don't even here, remember anything from this album. Neither did I. And, you know, judging from its position here, it wasn't a big hit um, in Gaul either. So, <laughs> so there you have it. But Right, yeah. Moving on for you, number 38 is uh, Lene Marlin with Playing My Game. Um, she's a Norwegian pop singer, but this is in English. Um, sounds vaguely like Jewel or Dido. Um, it's pretty boring, but inoffensive. Um, her Norwegian accent definitely pops up at certain points during the album. And from what I could tell, she was kind of a one-album wonder. Um, this album was pretty successful um, throughout Europe. Um, the three singles, Unforgivable Singer, Sitting Down Here, and Where I'm Headed, were top 40 hits across the continent. Um, it went platinum in France, but everything she's put out after that has only really charted in her native Norway. Um, but because of this album, Marlon won um, Best Pop Solo Artist, Newcomer of the Year, and Artist of the Year at, Spelman, at Spellman Prison, 
which is the Norwegian version of the Grammys. But um, she hasn't put out an album in like 10 years. And like her only credit since then was um, she wrote a song on um, one of Rihanna's albums. But um, I mean, it's okay, I guess. But not really that great. Norway has contributed quite a bit to um, popular music. I did have a brief period where I listened to Norwegian rap. Okay. Okay. No, I didn't. I'm just making shit up. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, the Oslo I rap. The Oslo rap scene is hype. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, 37 for you is corn with issues. Yeah, I'm skipping this because fuck corn. So. Boo. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay. Number 36 for you is Laurent Gara or Gara. With en route ver l'andabile, as I probably butchered that. I mean, the fun of this is going to be me butchering French titles, and that's the first one. So, right, yeah, I'm not even sure if that's correct because I'm skipping this one, <laughs> or it's completely incorrect. Actually, it, it probably is. Yeah, but it's um, 35 for you is Eurythmics with peace. This was the last album from the Eurythmics and their first one at that time in 10 years. Um, it sounds about what you'd expect. The Eurythmics as late 90s, kind of adult, contemporary, sort of. They Actually, it sounds kind of pre-Coldplay is the way I guess I would uh, describe it. Uh, the track I Saved the World Today, the first signal, does sound quite a bit. It does sound a little bit what, what, what I would like what I was hearing in Paris at the time had a little bit of an electronic effect to it. You are hearing a little bit of trip hop downbeat type influences and some of the stuff on this chart and the Eurythmics delved into that a bit. Um, to debut this album, the band performed it on the Greenpeace boat rainbow warrior Two, which coincidentally enough is the same way I debuted my album in 1999 too. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was available and I wanted to perform on a boat. So right. <laughs> that happened. But this was it for the Eurythmics. Um, some of the reviews at the time were mixed. Uh, I actually didn't think it was that bad what I listened, listened to of it. But, um, you know, it was the Eurythmics in 1999. So there you have it. Right. Yeah. Uh, the video that I saw did not have any cows walking around um, cellists either, which is just, Oh, damn. <laughs> so number 34 for you is Lou Bega with a little bit of Mambo. Uh, Lou Bega's singer, rapper, wannabe Mambo King from Germany. Um, Lou Bega is actually his last name. His full name is David Lou Bega. And he's best known for his annoying ass Mambo rap, Mambo number five, which is, on this album, um, everyone on earth knows Mambo number five. It was a massive international hit. And Lou essentially re-recorded that song 13 times for this album. Uh, the same Perez Prado horn samples are in every single song. Uh, the courses on all the songs are just lists of various things. So instead of a little bit of Monica in my life, a little bit of Erica on my side, you get stuff like, I got a girl in Paris. I got a girl in Rome. I even got a girl in the Vatican Dome. Um, the only time he even switches it up is on a song called Mambo Mambo. And that's basically the same shtick, but he's doing it over a salsa backing. 
And there is a groan-inducing skit before that track where um, he argues with his manager, who's Puerto Rican, apparently. And um, it's basically just some guy with a fake Puerto Rican accent. Uh, But he's saying that he can't play salsa because he's the Mambo King. Um, But anyway, this is was terrible probably one of the worst things i've ever had to listen to for this podcast and yes i did listen to the whole album what why why, uh, why did you do that like why did you... I, I listen i listened to the full album for all these oh my god <laughs> i don't do that i sample i like filter and i don't listen to the whole thing unless i'm like totally interested in it you are crazy uh, yes i guess so you are dedicated beyond belief like right beyond the pale <laughs> But this was one of the few albums on here that was also on the American charts at the time. It was actually in the top 10 here. And I remember Mambo number five either being played at your wedding reception or at the bar we went to after the reception. And one of our uncles mentioned that he really liked the song. So you have to guess the uncle. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with uh, Uncle Dave. You are correct. It was Dave. Yeah. So <laughs> I know my uncle's musical tastes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it goes to show that the best mamba comes out of Germany. That's where I know I think of first when I think of mamba. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And to be specific, <laughs> it comes out of East Germany, the former East Germany at this point. Right. Yeah. Because their economic background made them more suitable to record mambos. Exactly. Right. That's a proven fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but number 33 for you is So on C. Shankun Pet Un Metra Un Peu Du Sen. Um, not sure if there was an artist there, but that's various artists. It was a, this is a skip. It was a, <laughs> benefit album to raise money for children with aids i found it very little on this one um in english or in french it only had one track available on youtube um so i was able to find out the soul and see organization raise money for kids with aids but that's about the extent of it so this one was pretty obscure and has kind of disappeared off the uh face of the earth sort of okay it's pretty okay. amazing when you can't find tracks on youtube because YouTube has some of the most obscure shit ever on it. Um, like full albums that like are way out of print and, and this had very little. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, for at least two or three, I had to rely on YouTube for them. YouTube is usually the go-to. I'd rather, I mean, Spotify will have quite a bit, but sometimes, you know, it won't have an artist or whatever. So YouTube is usually pretty reliable. Right. Plus, you get your YouTube comment of the week from it, so you got to go to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number 32 for you is the soundtrack from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, yeah, this is the soundtrack from the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, which aired in France under the title Buffy Contra Le Vampire. I mean, it was on the Siri Club Network. Uh, for some reason, soundtracks of, for TV shows were pretty common in the 90s. I have no idea why um, Friends had a soundtrack. Um, the X-Files had a soundtrack. Uh, we have another example of that coming up later, but I'm not going to spoil it. Oh, uh, don't, because it's so culturally important. 
Uh, a lot of these soundtracks were inspired by the TV show, meaning that in most cases, um, the songs didn't actually appear in the episodes, but Buffy was different. All but four of the 18 tracks appeared on the actual show, and pretty much all of it is forgettable late 90s alternative rock by major label acts that went nowhere. You have Nerf Herder, uh, Velvet Chain, Fur Slide, uh, Biff Naked, Superfine, um, Four Star Mary. You get the idea. It's bands that put out like one album and disappeared. Um, the one notable exception is Guided by Voices, which is one of my favorite bands. And they're on this presumably because their label put out this soundtrack and just decided to throw them on there. They weren't actually in the show, but they're still around. Um, but anyway, it's hard to imagine that anybody but the hardest of the hardcore Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans actually went out and grabbed this. But um, based on sales figures, there were a higher percentage of these people in France. Um, this only made it to a 120 on the U.S. charts to give you an idea. But um, it's pretty forgettable. So. What was the Guided by Voices song on it? Um, Teenage FBI. Oh, okay. I was hoping it'd be like, uh, I don't know. I was trying to think of one of their more bizarre songs. Uh, they they should have used Kicker of Elves. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> good choice. Yeah, yeah. But um, 31 for you, we have Eddie Mitchell with Les Nouvelles Adventures, Eddie Mitchell. So there's a lot of French albums that start with Les Nouvelles Adventures, which translates to the new adventures of, and in Eddie Mitchell's case, uh, his new adventure included a passable, though way too clear, cleanly recorded version of Hip Hugger by Booker T and the MGs, which uh, was relatively uh, faithful. Um, after that, it busts into uh, French blues rock and French stacks style leanings, which is the best kind of blues rock and or stacks. Um, and occasionally... The album is interrupted by an American female DJ who introduces some of the songs. Sometimes she's backed by strings as she's introducing them, which is, um, which for French audiences probably sounded relatively exotic to an American person. It sounds like an American DJ just jumping into a French album for no good reason. But yeah, um, Mitchell is sort of a legend in France. He began 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 recording in 1963, and. Uh, primarily worked worked in rock and some of these songs were um you know surprisingly rocking i mean i'm not that i'm gonna go like download them or anything but it was all right it wasn't like 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 uh you know cringe inducing or anything like that so um but eddie mitchell was uh up there at this point but uh but he had some new adventures in him still at this at this in 1999 right yeah exactly it, you know, this is as good a time as any. This was a weird time to be in France in hindsight, because okay. looking back on it, the economy in 1999 at this point was booming pretty much everywhere. Um, the one thing I remember is France was getting ready to transition to the to the EU uh, economy. They I was literally there in the last month. They had francs as currency. They were about to switch to um to um to euros so mm -hmm. uh, i remember a lot of signs and a lot of sort of pensiveness but also excitement about becoming a 
part of an integrated European economy. So it's kind of weird, like these days where there's been quite a bit of backlash towards the EU um, and Europe in the in the modern and in, in current days. Back then, people were really optimistic and all that. So it has nothing to do with Eddie Mitchell, but just to give you kind of an idea of where the mindset of France was uh, when we were there uh, 21 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So we only paid dollars because I ain't using any of that uh, <laughs> European trash ass money. <laughs> right. No, we we did we did uh, we we did have to use the ATM over there. I think yeah, probably several times actually. Lord knows what the charges were for that. I kind of would be curious to know. So. Yeah, I, I, I'd imagine it'll be quite a bit. Well, we didn't have a cho- choice. I mean, you know, we couldn't. We actually on the exchange rate, it was better to do it through a machine, like rather than like have travelers checks or anything like that. Which, so, <laughs> but and we were going through through the Credit Leon bank machine down the street from our hotel, whipping out those francs, spending money we didn't have. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've never been to France, so I, I can imagine imagine it would be fun. But pro t- pro tip, they don't speak English in France. Yes, yes, that is true. I'll whip in random France memories as we go along, but I don't want to go crazy right now. But because okay. at number thirty, we have Celine Dion with Alcour Gestad. Yeah. Gestad. Uh, and uh, see i'm trying to speak german french (laughs) like german yeah yeah (laughs) but uh, the title leads from the heart of the stadium and this was recorded live at stade de france which was almost brand new at the time it was built for the 98 world cup right and this was taken from both of her sold out shows at the stadium um 90,000 people at each show and it's pretty much what you'd expect from Celine Dion. Um, lots of big ballads and stuff like that. All but two of the songs are in French. And I will say that she's much more tolerable um, when she's singing in French than she is when she's singing in English. Um, it is a live album, but it never really seems like it's live. It sounds almost too perfect. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that they like heavily overdub this. And you can only really hear the crowd at the beginning and the end of the tracks. It never really sounds like a stadium full of 90,000 people. Um, But since this came out in 99, um, the big closing number is My Heart Will Go On, which was from the big movie hit of the year, Titanic. Uh, But this album was a big hit in all the Francophone countries. It was number one in France for two weeks, number one in Belgium, number one in Switzerland. Switzerland, um, number one in her native Quebec, um, but it was not released in the U.S., which isn't really surprising, but um, yeah, (laughs) so. How did it do in uh, Chad? I'm not sure how it did in Chad, but. They they speak French in Chad. Yeah, I know that. Um, It was once part of French West Africa. That's your history lesson of the day. That that is, that is. Yeah, that is true. And actually, the French version has a T before the Chad. So it's to Chad. To Chad. To but the T the T's silent. Right. So. Um, does this lead us to your long-distance dedication? 
It, it does. It does. Feel this one. I'm killing you. Uh, oh, okay. That's okay. just a general thing. I'm just going to say that every time you go before me. If you steal <laughs> mine, I'm going to kill you. Uh, okay. Okay. I just kind of like Francis or the dude from, not Francis. I don't remember where the guy from Stripes, the lighten oh. up. Yeah, I guess he was Francis. Yeah, Francis. Yeah. Anyway, what do, you, what, what do you got? Okay, since we're mainly dealing with artists that neither of us are familiar with on this chart, I decided to go with someone a little bit more well-known for my long-distance dedication. Uh, somebody we've had on here before at number 69 or Swazant Neuf, uh, we have David Bowie with Hours. Um, I was actually just getting into Bowie at the time in 1999. Um, the catalyst for that was that you left a mixtape at my place that had a bunch of tracks from Hunky Dory on it. Mm-hmm. But I, I picked the absolute worst time to get into Bowie because at the time he was moving his back catalog from Ryko Disc to Virgin. And the majority of his old stuff, the stuff that I wanted to listen to, uh, was temporarily out of print. Uh, the only albums that were available of his were this, um, his previous album, Earthling, uh, Greatest Top Hits Compilation, and Let's Dance. Um, the reissues were promised and everything, uh, but it was sort of vague when they were actually coming out. Um, so I, I just remember going to the record store a lot, um, seeing this and the other three albums in the Bowie slot and like walking away disappointed. Um, I never considered buying or listening to this one um, because it wasn't what I wanted. And um, present day 90s Bowie just seemed lame to me. Um, but I finally decided to give it a spin this week after 21 years. And it's not bad. It's not one of his best albums by any means, but it does have kind of the classic Bowie feel to it. Feels closer to something like Hunky Dory than it is to like his 90s experiments with electronica or industrial music. It's pretty decent. Um, the lead single Thursday's Child and Seven were the strongest tracks here. Um, both of those not quite on par with classic Bowie, but I mean, they're close enough to be, to be good. But um, this was his last collaboration with his guitarist Reeves Gabrell, who was um, like his main guitarist for like the late 80s and 90s. And the breaking point was that Bowie wanted to have um, TLC make a guest appearance on the album. And Reeves Gabrell was like furious about that, but it didn't happen. So, uh, but he left anyway, but um, the album was also the very first one to be released on the internet. Um, Bowie put it on his website um, two weeks before it actually came out. Um, in the stores and I forget how much he actually charged for it, but um, kind of historic for that. But um, I mean, this one was okay. And I'm going to dedicate this one to late period albums because sometimes they're not bad. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You mentioned hunky dory. I've moved on from that. I don't listen to that bullshit. I don't listen to Ziggy Stardust or station to station. I exclusively listen to Tin Machine these days when I want my... <laughs> okay, okay. And no, Reeves, but it... Reeves Gerbrell was in Tin Machine. I know, that's, that's, that's why. But, <laughs> no, it's interesting you bring up the Ryko disc part of this, because to this day, there are tracks 
Rykodisc was pretty revolutionary in the respect that they were, if not the first, one of the first, or one of the first to do it with a prominent artist to toss on, um, you know, unreleased tracks onto the back end of a, of a established album. And so like when I, the first one I got was station to station and I don't think there was a whole lot of unreleased from station to station. Primarily it was live stuff that they included from that period. But to this day for Ziggy Stardust, there's songs on there that have only ever been released on the Ryko disc version and not released since. Right. Yeah. Including sweet head, which is a great song off of one of the outtakes from uh, Ziggy Stardust. And for whatever reason, that's never come out on anything else. I don't even think it's available on streaming or at least not on Spotify. Maybe it's on iTunes or something. But uh, <laughs> so those Ryko disc albums still have some value to this day because they do have tracks on them that uh, for whatever reason haven't been cleared on subsequent releases. So um, so I hold on to my Ziggy Stardust CD because the outtakes from that are really good, actually. See, um, I... I do have the Ryko Disc version of that. I got that one used, I think. But the like Hunky Dory and um, like Man Who Sold the World, I went like for the version versions just because they were there. And neither of those have the bonus tracks. So. Well, I do have the bonus tracks. So in your face, I, I only have the Ryko Disc ones. So oh well, um, well you're you're special, I guess. I guess. I mean, I. <laughs> I have the man who sold the world. I have hunky dory. I have um, Ziggy Stardust, and I have um, Aladdin Sane. And I don't really remember any of the and and Station to Station. I don't really remember the bonus tracks from anything other than Ziggy Stardust. Uh, although maybe Hunky Dory has bombers on it. Maybe that's the man who sold the world. I forget, huh. but I think it's hunky dory has bombers on it but um anyway if they cheated on some of those two like on um the man who sold the world one i think they had some bonus tracks that are actually more like from hunky dory but right um, a lot of bands do that like when i bought the rolling stones goat's head soup recently the lp um it had bonus tracks but it took one that was probably more like from it's only rock and roll but whatever so some right. people are into those bonus tracks some aren't i am kind of ambivalent unless they're good um yeah that's true them, yeah. i just judge them like i do any other song i do for songs i like and know it is interesting to me to hear an alternate mix on it some people couldn't give a fuck but you know right yeah just depends depends on the artist depends on how much i'm into them so yeah that's true and i i think there's the other aside from ziggy stardust i think the only other one where uh, the bonus tracks stick out quite a bit is um, the Who Sellout. Uh, the, the bonus tracks the Who Sellout almost, ones, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Bonus well, tracks on that are almost better than the regular album. Actually, a lot of the, the stuff from the Goat's Head Soup one is pretty good, but some of those are are legitimate outtakes. Some of them are enhanced outtakes. Um, it just depends. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, some people don't like instrumental versions of songs that weren't. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I think anytime an album has bonus tracks, you almost have to take them um, on a case-by-case basis, I think. I, I'm not like, there's some people who are just dead set against them, and I, I don't feel that way because I've heard some interesting stuff over the years. But 
Right. Um, yeah. But then again, there is a lot of stuff that probably wasn't released for a good reason, too. And bands cheat. The Rolling Stones are the worst. I mean, they are like the George Lucas of bands. They definitely go in and re-record vocals and overdub and stuff like that. So they're not they're not really outtakes. I mean, mm-hmm. um, Crisscross Man, which they actually released as a single off the Goat's Head Soup thing, is totally well. It's not totally different, but it's significantly different from the one that I used to have on bootleg um, off of YouTube. Uh, so. I mean, the thing is, with new technology, you can go hear the original one if you want. I mean, YouTube is filled with bootlegs by all kinds of bands. And so the old days where you can only get it on CD or record or whatever, you know, it's those days are gone. So it doesn't really matter, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. I know the next album that I'm about to talk about is one that I would love to have alternate tracks from. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, 29 for you is Vonda Shepard with songs from Ally McBeal. You know... I feel like everybody's kind of forgotten about Ally McBeal, which was arguably one of the most hyped shows of the late 90s. Though, looking back on it, it never did better in the ratings than number 20, which I suppose by the late 90s, that's pretty good because by then Fox was pretty well established and there were more shows. But, um, you know, it wasn't like it obviously never got to the top 10. Um I, th- I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like a lot of things that were popular in the late 90s have kind of fallen off the board a little bit, like in terms of like there's a hole in late 90s stuff for me. And it's kind of yeah. it, it's a weird time because most of the technology, of the late 90s has been replaced. So you can't go watch Ali. Well, I suppose you could. But I mean it's not as readily available to watch on say YouTube, a show from the late nineties as it is something even from the early two thousands. Um, right. Streaming was just in its infancy at this point. Um, and certainly what streaming there was, was completely audio at that point. There was, you know, there was video streaming, but it was expensive to do and all that. So, but that was right around the corner. So a lot of that stuff, you know, and the whole concept of, gifs and memes and stuff like that didn't happen in the late 90s so a lot of that culture came into being you know maybe five ten years later and kind of put this period you know into a deeper part of history than it really is by in terms of years so i think that's part of it maybe another part of it is that it was just an overrated show but um, yeah you know, but it is weird how we pick and choose our nostalgia. Like, for example, you could watch Chappelle show on demand um, through several different mediums. Um, I know mm-hmm. it just got kind of it got removed from Netflix because Chappelle didn't want it there. But it's that that's no big deal because it's available on a gazillion other different forums. And so it's right. weird how that, you know, and P- Chappelle show is not fresh. I mean, that was 18 years ago when that was out. So, right. It's funny how we kind of pick and choose our our nostalgia which well uh, Chappelle's show is way better than Allie McBeal <laughs> well no doubt but it's not for everybody I mean that those are two different audiences too I mean my yeah. wife watched Allie McBeal she isn't very likely going to sit down and watch Chappelle's show whether it's funny or not whereas yeah. I'm the other way around but even for the audience that would have watched Allie McBeal I don't feel like there's some like oh my god Allie McBeal's on CBS uh, on demand you know I just don't feel it Mm-hmm. But anyway, this album doesn't deserve to re- be remembered anyhow. It's mostly 
just terrible covers by Vonda Shepard, who was one of the supporting actresses on the show. And up until this point had been best known for her terrible, uh, can't we try duet with, uh, with the infamous Dan Hill back in the Yes. Yes. So maybe, maybe nostalgia is just stupid and we shouldn't even worry about it. Eh, Possibly. (laughs) That's my take based on this and I'm sticking with it, but. Okay. I'm trying to remember what I was watching in 1999. I don't even remember what shows I was watching. No clue. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure I was watching the X Files, um, but I don't remember what I don't remember having a go to. I think I was out of the period where I had go to shows at this point. Yeah, kind of same with me. Um, was Seinfeld still on at this point, or? It would have been if it was, it would have been right at the end. And even at the end of Seinfeld, it wasn't worth watching either. It would, last couple of years of Seinfeld are way overrated. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Um, but The Simpsons I watched then, um, I think that was like the only one I ever really made a point of watching. I mean, I did watch other shows, but it was never like, I have to sit down and watch this. Well, with the exception of Caroline in the City, that was my go-to. <laughs> Yeah, but you, you, I guess the concept of appointment TV didn't really exist at this point. I, I, I did watch Law and Order at that point, though. I'm sure I did. I, I probably watched that, too. But it... well, 90s Law and Order is worth watching. After that, it became rote. But right. Anyway, next <laughs> up for you, number 28 is Alanis Morissette with MTV Unplugged. I am skipping this one. Um didn't actually listen to it. So <laughs> Wow, you are you are horribly undedicated considering that for most of these albums I just skimmed them, but <laughs> okay. I will point an accusing finger at you anyway. Uh, okay, okay. Um twenty seven for you is the offspring with Americana. Well, I think it's a scientific fact that every offspring song sounds exactly the same. Um Yes. This features um pretty fly for a white guy which is as diverse as they ever got and again maybe nostalgia is stupid because i can't imagine why anybody would be nostalgic for the offspring <laughs> i mean they well i mean why would anybody be i mean they're they were just a dopey ass kind of party band really yeah yeah that's true yeah they didn't make any grand statements they were just kind of there and uh you know recorded shit like pretty fly for a white guy give it to me baby <laughs> yeah that was probably their magnum opus too i mean <laughs> well i mean it really probably was i mean what well you know i think it was better than come out and play i I, I disagree there I, I i think come out and play is better than that but they both suck let's agree on that yeah yeah you're right about that <laughs> let's move on to something more continental number 26 for you is a meal and Images or Im- 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 image or whatever. Right. Uh, oh my God. Jusque au bout de la nuit. This is a skip. It wasn't available on streaming, so I just skipped it. You didn't go to French YouTube for a meal and Im- image image. No, and no, I didn't go for this one. Hey, <laughs> words that end in G E S. I can't do it. <laughs> I struggled big time with the language when I was in France. I used to mix up words and they just laugh at my ass. I deserved it. After yeah, a while, I, mean, I, I could see that happening if even I went over there and I had like, I took French in high school. 
we went to the one country in Europe where I really had struggled to say the words. Any other country, I would have been fine. I could say German words. I could say Italian words. I mean, I probably would have struggled with anything that doesn't use our alphabet, but right. you know, Spanish yeah. words. So, yeah. <laughs> Swedish words would have been a bit tough, too, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But um, let's see. 25 for you is Britney Spears with Baby One More Time. Well, I checked out on Top 40 Music by this point, so I can't really differentiate between Britney's albums. Uh, this is her first one, and it's a famous one where Britney is kneeling on the floor like a dirtier version of uh, Debbie Gibson. Um, this had been out by a year at this point, so even I was familiar with Baby One More Time and all that, and, you know, big, big, massive hit for Britney Spears. And um, But this does happily bring us to the Wikipedia fun fact of the week. Okay. Sponsored by Respect Your Elders. And after Spears posed for a Rolling Stone photo shoot, lying on her bed, exposing her bra uh, while holding a Teletubby, which is what I do a lot too. Um, <laughs> the American Family Association, which I belong to, called on, quote, God-loving Americans to boycott stores selling Britney's albums, unquote. Spears countered by saying, quote, what's the big deal? I have strong morals. I'd do it again. I thought the pictures were fine. And I was tired of being compared to Debbie Gibson and all this bubblegum pop all the time, unquote. Not <laughs> cool, Brittany. Debbie Gibson will not, any criticism of Debbie Gibson will not stand <laughs> from this corner of the world. So, right, yeah. Just because you were 1999, 1990. The boy, the high school boys of 1999's fantasy doesn't mean you have to fuck it up for the fantasy of those who were in high school in 1987. So, right. Just, that was ageist <laughs> on Britney's part, <laughs> even yeah. though I was only in my 20s at that time. So, so yeah, don't be dissing on Debbie Gibson. Okay. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. Yeah. So, Moving on for you, number 24, Whitney Houston. My love is your love. I skipped this one. Um, I kind of wanted to um, go for the French artist, so I skipped her. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, 23 for you is Buena Vista Social Club with Buena Vista Social Club. This album happened by accident. Ry Cooter, who has had a really diverse recording career, uh, was going to Havana to record a mixed Cuban Malayan, and I say Malayan as in not in Malaysia, but Mali in Africa um, album. But the Malayan, Malayan, whatever, artists couldn't get visas to go to Cuba. So Cooter decided to do a crazy Ivan instead and recorded an album featuring pre Castro sun music, as it's called, written by several different native Cuban artists. Uh, sun music is music of Cuba, Cuba basically that predates uh, the the Castro revolution. So, um, so like traditional Cuban music. Um, most of it is acoustic with light Cuban style percussion. Uh, probably more befitting of Miami than Paris, but it's it's what I listened to it of it. What I, what I listened to of it was pretty good. Uh, very critically acclaimed album as well. Um, it had been out for quite a while by this point, too. So, um, But this is kind of the definition of world music, and uh, pretty good if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. I don't know how often I'm in the mood for world music, because it seems like world music is like taking a college class or something like that. It's like 
first of all, you get told how good it is in advance. And so it has to live up to that. And then it's like, if you don't like it, then it's almost like you're disrespecting the culture of the country that it comes from. So. Right. It's kind of crap. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sort of, I mean, I kind of delve into it, but not really. I mean, more to like Brazilian type stuff. I mean, that's like most of the world music that I've listened to has been like Brazilian. So most of my world music actually comes from Tatooine from the, the, uh, the bar band in the, in the. In the <laughs> okay. Camp. Okay. Well, that's world music. It's just a different world. I you're, mean, it's still yeah, you're, you're, you're right about that. Yeah. I mean, that one blue elephant could play whatever instrument that was that hookah thing or whatever. <laughs> or wait, no, he was like a keyboardist. Who was the, there was like a guy in the cantina band that played like this thing. that looked like a combination between like a saxophone and a hookah. It was like a reed instrument of some sort. Yeah. It was like, um, his head looked like a light bulb basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's my world music. What, what would make George Lucas think that other planets would basically like night? That's basically 1920s music. Pretty like much, yeah. Like, like you do the Charleston to that stuff. Like, putting on the reds. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like in Star Trek how they think that like aliens are like way into Shakespeare and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I like how they culturally appropriate our own shit into other like made up cultures. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Like, or or the well, even the most obvious example, the hippie rock band uh, that Charles Napier was in, uh, <laughs> yeah. going to, going to Eden. You know, it's like, why would there be hippies in space just because they're here? I mean, I, I mean, I hope there are hippies in space. That'd be really cool. But, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know if I had to pick out. Like, I don't need, we don't need to go down that rat hole. So, okay. Anyway, number 22 for you is Shania Twain. Come on over. I, I ended up with a lot of Canadians on my side of the chart for some reason. And um, this is the sole representative from English speaking Canada. Um, this is, was her big, huge cross um, pop crossover hit. Um, it might as well have just been a greatest hits album. Um, Every single one of her well-known songs is on this. Um, You're still the one, man. I feel like a woman. Um, that don't don't impress me much. Um, all of which were huge hits, and even like the lesser-known tracks on this seem familiar. But part of that might have been because um, twelve out of the sixteen tracks on this were released as singles, and four of those became hits in France. Um, but this album was the mastermind of Shania's husband, um, Mutt Lang, um, who we had on our last album's chart with um, Def Leppard's Hysteria. And on that one, he was trying to create the metal version of Thriller. And here he was trying to create the country pop version of Hysteria and Thriller combined. And like Hysteria, this took forever to record. Um, Not because like Shania lost her arm or anything like that. Uh, but just because Mutt was such a perfectionist about everything. Um, but like Hysteria, it lived up to its ex- expectations. Um, it supposedly sold 40 million copies worldwide. Um, in terms of its actual confirmed sales, it's actually the third 
best-selling album of all time. And in the U.S., it's second behind Metallica's Black Album in sales of albums since Sound Scan was introduced. Um, 16 million copies. But despite all those sales, it never actually went to number one in the U.S. Um, it peaked at number two, um, which was only two spots better than what it did here in France. But um, this was a pretty decent pop album, I thought. I didn't really have any complaints with it. And it probably created the blueprint that Taylor Swift followed for her own crossover about a decade after this. So, See, I'm trying to find... I lost my internet connection for my computer. I have it from the phone, but I'm trying to find... My wife and I got into an argument over what we were going to dance to at our wedding. Okay. And, um, I forget which Shania Twain... It was a cover, I think, um, that... Uh, Shania Twain did. It would have been on that album, and I but I can't pull it up right now because I'm my internet's stupid. Okay. Uh, but so yeah, but I won. We danced to uh, Paul McCartney's uh, "My Love," which was my choice. Okay, okay. I win. Screw you, Shania Twain. But um, yeah, I don't know. I can't get it. So anyway, so that's the moral of the story. Is is um, Mutt Lang, I didn't dance to Mutt Lang at my wedding. Right. Um, <laughs> well, you could have danced to like Highway to Hell. You produced that. I don't think the better half would have been going for that. Yeah, um, probably not. <laughs> you know, um, but my love worked fine. Yeah, it was yeah. Good. So I forget. God, what it was. It wasn't still the one. Um, it was something mushy. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Right. See, but 21 for you, we have Will Smith with Willennium. Um, Skip. So we're going to jump into my long distance dedication. Okay. Um, As I mentioned, what I wanted for this countdown uh, was some electronic music that I heard when I was out and about in the streets of Paris. Uh, The closest thing I found to it was at number 51 was LaRusso with Simplement. I think is how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, and like I said, when I was walking around Paris, it was far no- more noticeable to hear club type music than it was here in the States. I remember one department store in particular um, that was on the right bank in Paris, which is sort of, I guess, what counts for a downtown area, um, kind of an indoor type mall thing. Uh, not Not a mall in the sense of what we think of it, but more like covered shops and stuff like that. Um, where it was just like, like the craziest weird by our ears anyway, weird electronic like post house music type stuff, and it, but it seemed to be right for the time and place. Um, you know, it was cool. I, it kind of actually probably opened my ears a little bit to some of the electronic music I missed from the '90s. Um, what I eventually kind of got into to a point was kind of trip hop and downbeat that type of stuff, basically chill music. Um, this stuff was a little bit more than chill music. It was more up-tempo than that and more hardcore, uh, like stuff you'd go, you know, uh, to a, you know, drop a bunch of ecstasy to and, you know, rave about, for, you know, go to a rave and for like 48 straight hours, that kind of music. Um, so you heard that a lot in Paris and, um, you know, 
the LaRusso album was the closest I heard to it. She sounds like sort of an updated Tina Marie. Um, okay. With a dash of chill music sensibility. So it was pretty good. Uh, more soulful and funky than similar American music of the time. And, um, you know, electronic dance pop music isn't my thing. I mean, I can't dance worth a damn. Um, so, but I dedicate this to when in Rome, do as Romans do, even though I was in Paris and I don't recall dancing when I was there, but, right. um, so, but I feel like I, I, it's something I associate with time and place. So go French electronica music. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm trying to think, I don't recall ever seeing a live band when I was in Paris either. I mean, what surprised me about Paris was, is that uh, we stayed in the French quarter um, or not the French quarter, um, the Latin quarter, the French quarters of New Orleans, um, which is by the Sorbonne and and stuff like that. And so I thought there'd be, you know, like real late night nightlife and stuff like that. And that does exist in pockets, but actually Paris, at least the part of Paris I was in shut down pretty early. I mean, most of the time it was pretty much dead by about midnight. So, Hmm. Um, and of course, Kathleen and I were just jet lagged to shit when we were there. That's the only time I've really ever had bad jet lag. And so we were way off in terms of like when we were getting up and, and all that. And, um, so, so we weren't out clubbing when we were there, which it's kind of a shame. I bet if we went now, we'd probably actually do more of that type of stuff, but, um, so, but yeah, so, um, you know. That's the way it went. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyway, next for you is number 20, Malane Farmer with uh, Inamoramento. Pretty close, yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah, that's about as close as you're going to get is that with even that French, one. Or is that Italian? Um, it, it is French. So. so how should I have said it, Mr. Genius? Um... I mean, I would have done as well as you did there. <laughs> Inamoramento. I mean, I'm not used Inamoramento. to Yeah, that's pretty good. I'm not, yeah. I'm not used to French words ending in O. Right. That's like Italian to me. Yeah, exactly. But um, another Canadian here, or at least she was Canadian-born. Um, her parents were French. Her dad was working in Montreal when she was born. Um, they ended up moving back to France when she was a kid. And she was sent to speech therapy... Uh, when she was in school, because her Quebecois accent was so thick. Um, something that I can relate to, because a similar thing happened to, to me when we moved to Indiana. Um, I, I got sent to speech therapy because of my Wisconsin accents. Did you really? I didn't know that. In part because of it, because I, I pronounced TH words with a D. So I said dare instead of there. So, uh-huh. okay. But anyway, about 30 years after that, um, this album came out. Um, Dance pop would be the best way to describe it. A lot of electronica-style beats. Um, Farmer's voice is kind of ethereal. Um, She's almost whispering on most of the tracks. Um, A lot of this sounds like something out of the Pure Pure Moods commercial. Um, The two singles from this album got a lot of attention for their videos, um, the first for Lama Stramgram um, takes place in medieval China, and it was actually filmed in China, even though based on what you see in the video, it could have very easily been faked in France. 
Um, but Mylene is playing twins and they're being attacked by a Mongol horde. And they're also apparently magical twins um, because when they combine their extra long tongues together, um, they shoot lightning bolts everywhere. Of um, course. Apparently it had a really high budget, um, but it looks like something from Power Rangers or something like that. Um, the second one for Jetem or Jeteren Tanamore was pretty controversial. Um, it has Mylene in a crumbling church. She's going to confession. And on the other side of the screen at confession is the devil. Um, the devil grabs her and starts making out with her and fake blood starts flowing all over the place. You can't really tell if the blood is the devil's or hers, um, but she ends up getting crucified, smeared with blood, and the devil's like walking away dressed up like a monk. And then it ends with her like totally naked bathing in the fake blood. Um, it did air on French TV, but it was highly censored. Um, they basically just cut it off right after the devil grabbed her. Um, but Mylene wasn't thrilled with being censored at all. So she had it pulled entirely off of French TV and released it as a video single. And it actually ended up becoming the highest selling music video in French history. Um, but this was a pretty big hit. It's been certified diamond in France, which means it sold a million copies. But it's okay, I guess. So She didn't follow the advice of a noted American artist who also ran up against the devil. When you, when you encounter the devil you're supposed to challenge him to a fiddle duel that's what you're supposed to do yeah yeah she de- she definitely should have done that there although i still maintain that the devil beat charlie daniels in that he, he definitely did i think that's horseshit you're right but about that yeah fake news yep so at number 19 we have back with midnight vultures well I knew back in 1997 that Beck was going to delve into funk when he ended his concert I went to in Indy uh, with a 10-minute I Want to Take You Higher jam, which was awesome, but not quite in line with what the Odelay crowd wanted from him. They were kind of perplexed by that. I thought it was really cool. But um, this album splits kind of critical opinion. Q Magazine, for some reason, called it one of the worst albums of all time, while New Music Express out of England included it among its top 500 of all time. Um, I'm probably, I'm definitely more in line with NME on that one. Um, uh, This is a good album. It isn't in the same vein as Odelay or Mellow Gold, but that's kind of the beauty of Beck that I think people hadn't figured out yet is that he was going to kind of like Bowie did delve into a bunch of different genres and, you know, I, I don't know that he's ever had a persona like, you know, distinct personas like Bowie did, but he definitely has his albums where he's going to do a, he's going to do an acoustic album or he's going to do an album where, you know, sort of like Odelay where he's, you know, I mean, he can't sample as much as he did, but you know, that in that vein. So I don't know if people had figured that out yet about Beck, that that was kind of his MO. Um, I still like Beck quite a bit. Um, And actually, this isn't far from the music I was hearing in Paris back at the time. So I'll give him credit for that. But I always thought this came out way before 1999, though. Maybe I'm just high. No, no, it did come out right around this time in the U.S., too. It must have, because this is the debut on the French chart. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I mean, I got this when it first came out. And I, at first, I kind of forced myself to like it. I 
wasn't really on board with it, but kind of listened to it a lot. It has grown up on me quite a bit. Well, at that time, I actually too, probably listened to this one more than Odalay. My sensibilities at that time were were very much into seventies funk and all that. I was buying up a lot of that stuff when I, at that time I would have been, by then I would have moved away from Louisville um, barely, but during the period from 97 to 99, when I lived in Louisville, um, I went through a big R and B like seventies R and B and funk phase. And that's almost exclusively what I was buying back then. Um, So this would have been right down my alley at that point, because that's basically what this is. It's Beck paying tribute to those, 70 funk bands basically and rb i mean he had horn charts on songs and all that kind of stuff right yeah exactly so it's almost like his prince album yeah but it's more like it's his um i mean prince never really i i'd say it's more like his um either isley brothers album or um, I'm trying to think who would have had horn charts along those lines, like the way he did in this. It's a Beck album. Yeah, pretty I mean, much. You know, he he did a good job of melding his influences in with his own thing. I always thought Beck was always really good at that. I mean, yeah. you can hear what he's going for, but it's still still Beck. It's not quite, you know, it's still sort of original. Right. Yeah. And I say the same for a number 18 artist, Francis Cabrel with Ors Saison. Yep. Um, Ors Saison means off-season. Um, Cabrel's a folk rock singer. Um, he was inspired by um, Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and he learned how to play by playing guitar along with their albums. And he actually did a French-language um, Dylan cover album a few years ago. Um, but anyway, he's been pretty successful in the francophone world since the late 70s. And he supposedly sold 25 million records worldwide. And this was a big one for him. Um, this was actually the number one selling album in France in 1999. Um, it's acoustic, somewhat bluesy, kind of adult contemporary, but not really. It's actually sort of pleasant i mean that's what i'll say about it it's pleasant i'll bet this was Um, sort of what i was hearing at the time because i did hear my share of that type of stuff too right i mean some of the albums that i had to listen to that um to for the rest of the chart were kind of a chore to listen to but this one was okay um there is a french language cover of otis redding's i've been loving you too long um which on this is titled depuis toujours and I didn't pick up on it at first because it was in French and it was being played on an acoustic guitar, but it's a pretty decent cover and it wasn't released as a single, but it probably should have been. But um, I enjoy this one. So Yeah, some of these albums were pretty chill. And that's one thing I did enjoy about some of the ones that I listened to. Um, you know, and I'll talk more about this later with another song, but there is something you mentioned that's a bent through a lot of this music that I'll reveal later. So everybody hang on the edge of your seats from that wonderful analysis coming down the pike. Okay. Okay. Hardly wait. Right. Is it for the next one here? Um, Phil, Phil Collins with the Tarzan soundtrack. (laughs) That would be a hard fuck. No, this is the (laughs) hardest of all skips. 
This is the skippiest skip of all skips ever skipped. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I do remember seeing the movie posters for this quite a bit in the, in the Metro in Paris though, (laughs) because this was out at the time and among other very French, I took some pictures of them. I should have dug them out along with some very French movies that were never released here with some pretty hilarious uh, movie posters. Yeah. Yeah. They were wacky. Yeah, as well as some that were pretty racy by American standards as well. So I, I can imagine that too. Yeah. <laughs> so well, that do- deals with seventeen. Number sixteen for you is the cores unplugged. Uh, this is a skip for me. Um, don't really like the cores. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, Fifteen for you is Bob Marley with "Chant Down Babylon." Chant down Babylon. This is a skip. It's just an all-star remix album of covers, and there's nothing worse than all-star remix. It's different if it's like covers of a like tribute to an artist. I can live with that, but remix tribute, no, fuck that. <laughs> Not doing it. Although I heard a remix of Funkadelic tracks by some Detroit DJs, which was good, but you don't have the whole all-star thing. It's not like, hey, check it out. It's um, I'm trying to think of an artist. Um, it's Bob Denver remixing um, uh, <laughs> Maggot Brain. Gilligan <laughs> yeah. should have done Maggot Brain. That would have been so cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why yeah. the hell Bob Denver jumped in my head. I must be on drugs. <laughs> he wasn't even a recording artist. <laughs> I mean. John Denver's remix of um, <laughs> Get Off Your Ass and Jam. <laughs> John, John Denver should have covered Funkadelic. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what he could have even passably pulled off. Nothing, basically. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> That'd be funny if he did that at the Country Music Award, the same one where Charlie Rich burned his uh, his the little sheet he had. And yeah, yeah. John Denver gets up there. He goes, "Shit, goddamn, get off your ass and jam." That would. Have been- <laughs> yes. Yep. Anyway, next for you, number fourteen, Tina Arena with In Deep. Um, I'd heard of Tina Arena before, but I'd never really heard anything by her. Which I wish I could still say because this kind of sucks. Um, it's this album is incredibly bland. Um, one of the most boring albums I've ever listened to. Um, it falls somewhere in between Celine Dion and like Willis Fair type stuff uh, to give you an idea what it's like. Um, the closest thing to a highlight on here is a cover of Foreigners. I want to know what love is. And even that's kind of bland. Um, but that cover was what broke her in France. Um, it was actually produced by Mick Jones from Foreigner and actually beat Foreigner's version on the French charts. Um, it made it five places higher to number 13. Um, but it wasn't as big of a hit as her uh, forgettable duet with Mark Anthony, um, I Want to Spend My Lifetime Loving You, which was from the equally forgettable movie The Mask of Zorro. Uh, that went to, to the top five in France. But the combination of those two singles uh, led to this album selling almost a million copies in France. And it's really the only place where she's had any sort of 
success outside of her native Australia. And for the past decade or so, she's um, just kind of focused on France and really only put out French language albums. But anyway, this one sucks. You know, looking at this, though, the album cover is very 90s. It's got Tina. It is very 90s. You're right about that. Like, it almost looks like, oh, my God, you just captured me getting out of the tub. Uh, type of pose <laughs> only that's like pretty much the most well-lit tub ever like professionally lit tub and it's like supposed i think it's i don't really think it's supposed to convey surprise but that's kind of the expression on her face it's like it's like oh well go ahead and take a picture of me as i get out of the tub the <laughs> right yeah exactly tub. yeah a lot of album covers were like that back then yeah yeah exactly yeah, I, I think there might actually be like another one on here that's like that too. Probably. It was yeah. 90s. Yep. Um, but number 13 is Texas with the Hush. Now we're talking. This is some good ass down tempo trip hop chill music. And I regret missing out on trip hop in the 90s. I mentioned that I was I've gotten into that since. Um, not really was it wasn't really my cup of tea at the time. Um, but I do like it quite a bit now, and my ears just weren't ready for it back then. I was still getting into the artists that inspired trip hop in the first place. Um, so time is a bitch. I was just behind the times and should have been into this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. But it's fun to catch up with it and say, "Huh, I was an idiot for not listening to that stuff or not opening up my mind to listen to that stuff." And if you don't know what trip hop or downbeat or whatever it is it's ambient music uh it's basically if you go put on a chill music station that's basically what it is it's basically like electronic jazz basically is the way i think of it it's not yeah technically yeah. it isn't but that's what it sounds like to my ears like i i actually popped on one day and it was actually pretty good um i popped on like an abitza uh uh, playlist from Spotify and actually kind of halfway liked it. <laughs> and I was not in ecstasy and I was not there uh, to party all night and I still enjoyed it. So don't do drugs. <laughs> you could still enjoy the music without the ecstasy or the molly or whatever you want to do. Right. Whatever, yeah, the, yeah. whatever the club drug of choice is these days, because I'm behind the times and I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. <laughs> I know you were a big uh, club and uh rave type guy back then so no no definitely not. i could have been i mean i just never you know when raves raves were popular in the early 90s too but i just that was not a scene that was going to be happening in muncie indiana so you know i wasn't really exposed to that type of stuff yeah i mean there were there was one guy who lived like two doors down for me in the dorms that was like way into it and at one point, we were all going to go do a rave with him, and it just somehow never happened. See, but... if you would have gone, you could have been uh, dropping some X and um, sitting there in Mount Adams, watching the boats go by, pondering <laughs> um, the the ways of the universe. Would have been amazing. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, while you had no clothes on as well so yeah yeah you know so but you did that anyway so it doesn't matter right yeah <laughs> anyway this was pretty this is pretty good i actually did enjoy this one it's not bad okay okay number 12 for you is florent pagne or pagne 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 
Florent Pagny. No. Okay. Pagny with recreation. Okay. Uh, Florent Pagny um, originally started out as an actor, mainly in minor roles. He wasn't a star or anything. Um, but at some point in the 80s, he crossed over into singing. Um, for whatever reason, this seems pretty common in France. Either actors becoming singers or singers becoming actors. It does happen in the States, but it happens more over there. Uh, but anyway, this one is called Recreation. Um, and that's because it's a covers album. Um, he's recreating the stuff. Uh, but he's only covering French artists on this. And the only song that I recognized offhand was um, Serge Gainsbourg's Requiem Per Un Con. Um, but most of what he's covering here would have been stuff that baby boomers would have been to in France. Um, it's mostly stuff from like the 60s through the early 80s. And he kind of redoes them in a late 90s electronica style. Um, it's interesting, but it's also very late 90s. Um, that's the best way to put it. Um, but it was a pretty big hit in France. It was a number one album, and it actually spawned a sequel, um, which was also all, all covers, but he th did them as duets. And Pagny is now a coach on the French version of The Voice, and he's kind of infamous in France for his tax problems. Uh, he's a tax exile, but um, part of the deal with being a tax exile is you have to live like a certain amount of time outside of the country to not pay taxes in France. And apparently he's always had an issue with coming back to France way too early. So he owes like a bunch of money to whatever the French IRS is. And apparently he's done a couple of stints in jail for it, but it's like one of the things that he's known for, or that's like a big scandal about him for you know, so you know what they should do the next time that happens what they should throw him into the french foreign legion yes yes they they should or they should do what they what we did for willie nelson and make him like record an album to pay off his debts or something like that you could do that but i mean <laughs> he could go serve in some fort in a french colony somewhere that even though the french don't have many colonies anymore but you know, he could do that. French foreign yeah. legion, they still exist. Yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. saw plenty of Pepe Le Pew cartoons that betrayed just that. Portrayed, not betrayed. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But um, number 11 for you is Andre Rio with Baldius Baldu Siecla. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, who wants some Dutch violin music? Uh who doesn't want Dutch violin music? Uh, Ryu recorded waltzes mostly, um, and he led the Johann Streuss Orchestra, uh, and he is immensely popular in circles that totally escape me and the ears of most Americans. I mean, this is basically sort of Schlager music um, that was also popular in France. So uh, stuff like that can make the charts over there, even as late as 1999, waltzes and... Um, basically orchestral music and America was like, we sailed over the ocean so we didn't have to listen to that shit anymore. So <laughs> right. we're not, we're, we're not going to have that in our top 40 albums. So yeah, that's basically what this is. Basically like 
modernized Lawrence Welk music. Okay, okay. So, but Andre Ryu is very, very popular in Europe, continental Europe. Engl- England is also like, you know, keep that shit. We- we'll build the channel, but we don't want you bringing that shit through. This is what, and eventually it led to Brexit. Andre Ryu was directly responsible for Brexit because they didn't want that bleeding into <laughs> pop culture. Right. Yeah, exactly. Boris Johnson's hair is the other opposite side of it. The Europeans don't want his hair uh, bleeding into European <laughs> culture. So yeah. It's kind of how it goes. But yeah. number 10 for you is 113 with La Prince de la Ville. Uh, the title for this means The Princess of the City. Uh, this is French rap. Oh, the best um, kind of rap. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's three guys in the group. Rim K, who's an Algerian, or, or Algerian descent. Makobe, whose family is from Mali. And Ape, whose family is from Guadalupe. So um, the former French colonial empire represent here. Yeah, we've got three different continents going there, don't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but I couldn't find out if their name was Saint-Trez, Untrez, or Un-Untois, but it comes from the address of the apartment building where the three guys uh, grew up in Vitry-sur-Seine, uh, which is a suburb south of France or south of Paris. Um, but I couldn't really get into this one. Um, foreign language rap doesn't really work for me. It's a genre that's so dependent on lyrics that if you're not fluent in the language and I'm not fluent in French, um, it kind of falls apart. Uh, with French music and other genres, I can kind of like fall back on a melody. Um, but here it's mainly just like standard hip hop beats and that's it. Um, there is one track that I really did like though. Um, it's called Tantan du Bled, which was a big hit off of this. And uh, the one song that didn't have a standard hip hop beat it, on it um they're rapping over what sounds like algerian folk music and it's pretty cool and in in the video they um go from paris to algeria and um this was i tried to find a youtube comment of the week for some of the stuff but um since they're all in french i kind of went for this one i mean a lot of the comments on this one are either like vive la alger or um, I don't understand this at all, but the beat's cool, which is kind of where I am at with this one. So that that's as close as I'm going to get to a comment of the week for um, this week. But, you needed to use Google Translate was your friend for that. Yeah, yeah. And there was also, I mean, also like Frank, French language versions of like, are you still bumping this in 2020 and stuff like that? <laughs> you should have done that. That would have been funny. But yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You make, a, should have. you make a good point about foreign language rap. I don't mind it, but it is entirely my, how much I mind. It depends on how the, uh, how the beat and the music is behind it. Um, because obviously I'm not going to be able to pick up on what they're rapping about. But then again, I've fallen so far out of, you know, mainstream tastes that I really don't know what the hell some of the current American rappers are rapping about either. So I guess it's yeah, yeah, a of. difference. But um, and the other thing that I notice when I look at this is every time I look at this entry in the chart, I just think to myself, investigate one, one, three. 
<laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. It, it's it's the opposite of Investigate 311. Yeah, they, they should get whoever is like the French version of Eric Andre to investigate. Well, right. they have new Eric Andres out and they keep, they're kind of repeating themselves and then maybe they could get a 113 for the Rap Warrior Ninja um, thing that they did in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which unfortunately, they're kind of repeating themselves with that. They've gone to that twice already. In really? Huh. Yeah. Have, have they pulled out Kraft Punk at all? Kraft Punk has been made in a couple appearances. Yeah, they, and the shows have been all right. I mean, unfortunately, Hannibal Burris is no longer on the show, so that's a big right. Yeah, that's a big hole. Although they did have a monster version of Hannibal called Blannable for a few shows, which was kind of funny. But um, <laughs> it's it's that show is still basically what it's always been. So. Yeah, yeah. If I'm in a bad mood, it's nice to pick me up for 15 minutes. Right. Yeah, exactly. See, but number nine for you is Veronique Sanson with Don Papillon Uden Atal. Translated from Butterfly to a Star. Um, Yes. Sanson is very popular inside France and more or less makes French style chamber music. So, kind of what I was talking about before. It's not Schlager because Schlager is more tied to, is not necessarily a francophone phenomenon. Um, what they call basically the French version of Schlager is chanson, um, which is sort of, I don't want to say it's crooner music, but traditional French music. Um, actually, probably the better way to describe it is it's music designed for the French language. I don't know that it's genre specific, but think of it as adult contemporary French music. And uh, Sanson herself would be considered a chanteuse, which was a style that was popular in the early part of the 20th century. Um, almost not quite a cappella singing, but basically singing over a basic acoustic guitar or something like that. So, um, you know, what I took away from this was that I love the way she spells her first name, uh, which is basically Veronica in French. So, yeah, yeah. I like French names that end in Q-U-E, like, um, um, I can't even think of any now. Monique. There you go. <laughs> um, but I did hear quite a bit of music like this when I was there, you know, kind of just simple singing over the top of an instrument and maybe a very light drums, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So very much of its place. Uh-huh. Next up for you. Number eight is Andrea Bocelli with Ari Sacre. Uh, this is opera and I don't really know anything at all about opera. So I have no idea if this is like good or bad opera. Uh, the English title for this is sacred arias and, it was released in our country under that title and it was actually made its debut on the billboard charts this week. It was at number 31 here, but it's a collection of religious arias. Um, Ave Maria is on here twice, but the arrangement on both versions is a little bit different than what I was used to. Um, So when I was listening to it, it was like um, this guy's singing the song wrong but he probably wasn't. Um, but he he hits all the big composers, religious material, 
uh, Mozart's on here, Handel, Wagner, Verdi, and so on. And he also tackles Silent Night and O Come All Ye Faithful, because I guess um, Christmas carols count. Uh, but it was a pretty big hit, though. It was actually the biggest selling classical album ever. Um, sold 5 million copies. And it was top 10 throughout Europe. And there was a PBS special on the album, um, which was actually nominated for an Emmy. Um, it's not my cup of tea, but it's not bad. It's like something that you'd hear in the background at like Borders back in the day. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have always wanted to go see an opera. I would love to go see like a dramatic one, not like... Um, I think it would be interesting because I like the principles. It probably would be, yeah. I like the principles of opera. Like, I know like some of the like the basics of the mechanics, like light motives and stuff like that, because movies borrow them. But um, I think it would be kind of cool to go see that. You know, at least yeah, one. yeah, it'd be in- it'd probably be pretty interesting. I'd rather go. I mean, see- it would depend on what it was, though. I mean, obviously, like in theory, I'd like to go see Wagner in practice. I'd probably hate it. But yeah, um, I think it would be more interesting to me than like a musical, because even though musicals, I, the last play I saw was a musical and it was good, but I'm not into musicals. And I kind of um, I, I don't know, I have a weird view of musicals, but it's almost like operas. Operas are basically musicals, uh, a different kind of musical, but it's like because it has a higher cultural standing, it'd be like huh, I need to pay more attention to this because I'm a snob and, um, you know, this seems like I should be interested in it. I don't know. So, yeah, 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 exactly. But I think it'd be kind of cool to go in an opera. Let's go. How about me and you? Let's go to an opera. Sure, sure. Let's do it. Let's go see The Ring of the Nubelung, like the whole thing. Like, let's go to Germany and see it. <laughs> okay, one, like okay. At, at Bayreuth or whatever it's called where they do that. Yeah, yeah. Like out in the German wild. And then you can... I don't know. What what does this German audience do? Do I have to like light a torch while I watch it or something? I don't even know. I have no idea. <laughs> because they've been going on since what, the 1800s? Because isn't that the intended yeah. way you're supposed to go see Wagner is to go see it out in Beirut or whatever it's called? In yeah, Beirut? I know that that's like that town's famous for like a Wagner festival or whatever. Yeah, but I think it's like where like he like, I don't know. I'm probably making shit up, but like he or one of his followers built a stage that was designed specifically for that opera. And I know it got tied into Nazi Germany imagery and all that shit. I don't know, whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't Wagner's fault. He was dead by then, but. Uh, right. Yeah. So, yeah. All I know is that Wagner made for some good moments in Apocalypse Now and some Warner Brothers cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Kill the Wabbit. Yeah. Kill the Wabbit indeed. <laughs> But um, let's see. At number seven, we have um, kind of lowbrow high culture here. Oh, Uh, yeah. uh, Metallica with Michael Kamen and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, S&M. By now, we are well into the eye roll phase of Metallica's career because in theory, this is a good idea. It's like Metallica, they do have a grand sweep to their music, especially their early like 80s stuff it definitely does have a, a operatic sweep to it it's not opera but it has that certain kind of big feel 
And so, yeah, hey, go in and record it with an orchestra. It could sound really cool. Um, but every song I heard off of this sounds forced. And this is the kind of shit that prog bands did. Uh, maybe not to this degree or to this financial backing. Um, but they thought it was cool to like record with orchestras. And that's something that early Metallica would have totally decried. You know, they would have been like, fuck that. I'm going to go thrash, you know? So even when Metallica thrashes out during this, which is basically a live album, it was an actual performance. Um, it just isn't right. It's just dumb. I don't like it. Uh Um, you know, and they really didn't play. I mean, they stuck also with most of their 90s stuff, which is the stuff that mass audiences know. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't need to hear an orchestra do, um, um, you know, enter Sandman or anything like that. It's silly. Right. Yeah. Trying to. I mean, I've never heard of this, but I'm trying to think what would best fit with this. I, I'm assuming Unforgiven's on here. Um, I, I'm, it might have been. Um, I know Sad But True, I think, was in there. Um, I can't believe they didn't do one. I If they did it, I didn't hear it. I I must have accidentally skipped it or something. See, I uh-huh. can see that with an orchestra. Um, but, or in some fashion. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was dumb. It was just like throwing shit at the wall and, you know, people were buying it. I mean, it sold well, but it's right. just not, it was when they were on their artistic road to ruin, basically. Pretty much, yeah. So, anyway, next up for you, number six, is Mariah Carey with Rainbow. Um, I really wasn't looking forward to this one, but it wasn't that bad. Um, it's R&B and hip-hop oriented, um, a lot more R&B and hip-hop oriented than her early stuff, and um, her voice isn't as over-the-top here, Um, There isn't really as much melisma or whistle register, which is kind of her trademark. Um, There are a couple ballads, but I mean, that's to be expected. Uh, One of the most impressive things about this album is the sheer amount of people who worked on it. Um, Eight credited producers and 38 credited songwriters. And included in those 38 are two of our favorite punching bags, Um, Diane Warren and David Foster and they're responsible for two of the ballads on here but there's also a lot of guest appearances and they're kind of a mixed bag Um, the Brat, Missy Elliott and Usher do a pretty good job on their guest spots but um, Snoop and Jay-Z are like clearly phoning it in um, basically just doing their schnick Um, but the highlights for me on this were the two covers um on the standard version, like outside of France, uh, there was just one of the covers, which was um, Phil Collins against all odds. And the French version added a version of um, the theme from mahogany, but she plays it pretty straight on both of these covers, uh, more or less sticks to the script. And they're both pretty decent, um, decent covers, but um, this was number two on the U.S. charts this week. It never quite made it to the top here, uh, but it did in France, and it was actually number one about three weeks before this. But I didn't mind this one. So I could see her doing the theme for Mahogany. I'm struggling to see her doing Against All Odds, but um, you know, I could see that. I guess. Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't. I mean, 
until the, I mean, she played it totally straight, like almost exactly to like what Phil Collins did on that song until like the very end where she does kind of like uh, become herself, I guess. Yeah. But. Cool. But, okay. At number five, we have Patrick Brule with uh, Juice Box. Are you ready for this mind blowing analysis? So here's my take on quite a bit of the French language music we've heard in this. Um, it should be pretty obvious, but a lot of this music is really just singer songwriter stuff played over the top of a, an acoustic guitar. And this Patrick Bruel album is a good example of that. I mean, sometimes they add in some strings. Sometimes there's some minimalist piano tacked onto it. There usually is drums, but light drums, not like heavy drums. Um, just good old fashioned, basic folk music, really. And that should be obvious. I mean, most of the underpinning of music culture around the world is based on that on some level. Um, and that's especially true in the uh, Latin speaking nations as France is along with Spain and Italy and stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I'd say maybe just under 50% of the albums I had featured an element of this. I don't know what your percentage was, but um, the, yeah, it was, it was probably about half of the French ones were like yeah, that. Because, I mean, I think to Americans, you tend to think of the more exotic aspects of, of a certain musical culture when in fact the bread and butter is usually a lot more basic and that's true for our music as well. So um, no reason France should be any different. And this stuff was going to get you high up on the charts back in 1999 France and probably in 2020 France as well. Right. Yeah, probably. So um, I remember listening to this while I bought um, a baguette. That's my memory. Uh, okay okay i don't know that may or may not have happened so anyway number four a biggie in france johnny halliday with sang poor sang um sang poor sang means blood for blood um johnny halliday was a french institution i had a feeling he would be somewhere on this chart um it's hard to explain johnny halliday because he doesn't really have a american equivalent uh, the closest comparison I can think of is Cliff Richard. And that is mainly because both of them were extremely popular in a single country for several decades. Um, not because they sounded anything alike. Um, early in his career, um, Johnny was kind of a teen idol, which is kind of hilarious because he uh, looked exactly like Conan O'Brien. Uh, but he specialized mainly in doing French language versions of English language rockets. And some of these are actually really good. Like his uh, version of the house of rising sun, which was um, retitled Le Penitentiaire and his version of um, Los Bravos black on black, which was uh, retitled Noir as Noir are both really great. Um, Noir as Noir is probably actually better than the original. And, his voice is somewhat similar to Eric Burden's, so that's why the other one works. But anyway, he had a habit of following whatever trend was um, going on in either the States or the UK at the time. So I was really curious of what he would do here, uh, what songs he was going to cover, if he was going to do like rap metal or something like that. <laughs> uh, but he, he did kind of do that for this, but the trends that he tried to go for 
um, weren't really that adventurous. Um, most of this sounds like live or late 90s U2. Um, there aren't really any covers on here. It's all original material, almost all of which was written by his son, David. Um, but the best song on here did kind of fake me out. Um, the, the song's called Unger Viandra, and it sounds quite a bit like uh, the Bee Gees' I Started a Joke. And at first I thought he really was doing that, but he wasn't. Um, but it really wasn't that bad. Um, this was a big hit. Um, most of his hits were big hits in France. And this was his 17th number one album. Um, and it also went diamond in France, which was also a common occurrence for him. But this one it wasn't too bad. So I do remember hearing some Johnny Holiday when I was there, and I felt like I shouldn't have gone that if i didn't hear it when i was there i was missing out so yeah yeah exactly which reminds me that the one thing that that we didn't do even though one stupid thing from paris when we were there is we stayed like i said in the latin quarter which is just south of the isle of of the island that the notre dame cathedral is on and when you're moving about in paris i mean paris is easily the most walkable place i've ever been to i mean it's remarkable but to go from the left to cross the same river obviously you go through that island um and we would walk by the notre dame cathedral every day and be like should we go today no line's real long let's go tomorrow and it got to the point where the day we were going to go we had an issue with a with the flight like the flight time changed or something like that we actually had to go back up to de gaulle airport like the last day we were there to straighten it out which kind of screwed up our time frame so we never went into the notre dame cathedral and of course young couple and all that we were like haha we'll just go the next time we go to paris well yeah, yeah, yeah. little did we know the stupid thing burned down and i was really actually very very sad about that when that i mean apart from the fact it's a world landmark and it's a beautiful church i had that part of me was very sorrowful about the fact that very unlikely i'm ever going to get a chance to see that in its full glory so um unfortunate but at least i did get to hear johnny halliday when i was there yeah that's that's true that's true i did go on the eiffel tower although i didn't go to the top i went only went up to the second level oh okay did they they have the top opened up at all it was open sometimes they close that um it was open i forget why we didn't do the top um, I think the line was insanely long. I think there might have been a, a price difference too, if I remember. Oh, okay. Yeah, probably. So I'm trying to think of other French shit that we did, um, like iconic stuff. I mean, we went to the Louvre, although we did kind of do the National Lampoon's European vacation version of the Louvre because the Louvre is massive. I mean, it's a palace. Mm-hmm. And we, to see the Mona Lisa, we went in real late one day because um people packed the mona lisa so we went in like a half hour before they closed and we just ran through the place basically because <laughs> there were better art museums the way paris does their art museums is they set them up by era so the louvre is renaissance art only it's and, they, and renaissance sculpture and stuff so if you want to see impressionist art that's um that's a different museum if you want to see modern art that's a different a different museum as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so my favorite was the 1800s, early 1900s, um, 
uh, Musée d'Orsay was is what it's called. So um, so we blitzed through the Louvre, although we were in the Louvre a lot because the m- building is so massive. We accidentally walked into it our first night there. We're just huh. walking around Paris. We crossed over the Seine River uh, walking at night. And we walk in and we see this big giant palace and like, man, that's cool. Let's go in there. We walk in this giant, you know, Renaissance era you know, Age of Enlightenment style courtyard. And we're like, wonder what the hell this is. And we look it up. Oh, fuck, we're in the Louvre. Because, so, <laughs> I mean, a lot of it isn't art museum. A lot of it is still the old palace and stuff. So, right. Uh, great place. Would love to go back to Paris again. It was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We did not go in the basement of the Alamo, though, unfortunately. <laughs> Although we did. Right. A lot of people don't know this. The Arc de Triomphe, um, you can go to the top of it and there is like a museum up in that area that goes over the top of the arch. Oh, okay. The French ah. military museum up there. Yeah. It was kind of cool. Hmm. I went in there and I remember we came down and I developed a sinus infection, from, not from the Arc de Triomphe. I had had it from the flight. And I remember going across the street to a drugstore um, along the Champs-Élysées and bought like ibuprofen because I was just having a horrible sinus headache. That's the, so what I remember about going to the Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> okay. Okay. Vive la France. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, number, number three for you, we have Les Enfoirs with Dernier Edition Avant L'An um, 2000. It doesn't get any more French than this. Uh, L'Enfoir translates to the tossers or the bastards, borrowing a <laughs> British phrase. Um, somehow that ties this to a charity concert given annually for Restaurants de Cour, a charity that distributes food to those in need. So think of this as like a very popular farm aid or, um, you know, that kind of thing. It's a benefit concert. And an album is recorded at this concert annually. And this is actually the last one that did not go to number one in France um, huh. since night since 1999. Every single one that's gone uh, into that's 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 been released since then has gone to number one and it's put out annually. So this made it only made it to number two. Um, so all I know is is that I found a video of this concert and it featured the 1998 World Cup uh, champion French soccer team. Uh-huh. So Fabian Barthez and Lilian Turam represent is what I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Not, it, I was still, it was a year after the world cup when we went, but there was still plenty of evidence of the pride of winning the world cup when we were there. So, Oh yeah, I bet. I bet. Which I like that French team. I was rooting for them in 98 cause they were different. It was like the first time a different country had won the world cup since I've been watching it. It's like a different country joined the club. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think any has anybody else different one since. I'm trying to think. I mean, um, Spain. Oh yeah, Spain did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I like the Spain. Who, who won the? Who won the? Oh, France won the last one. That's yeah. right. France yeah. won their second, and coming in second was the United States of America. <laughs> nope, we weren't even in it. <laughs> yeah, but I think we're gonna make it next time. Of course, they're expanding it, so we better fucking make it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So. Anyway, next up for you, number two is Lara Fabian, self-titled album. Yeah, um, Laura Fabian's a Belgian pop singer. Um, she was a former um, Eurovision contestant, and she represented Luxembourg in 1988. And 
she finished fourth behind someone we already had on the chart. Um, the very similar sounding Celine Dion, um, who is representing Switzerland. But after she finished fourth, um, she decided that the Benelux countries were a little too small for her. So she headed across the pond to Quebec. Um, the whole strategy was to um, maintain a career in Francophone pop while also being close enough to the U.S. where they might actually notice her. And she ended up becoming a pretty big star in Quebec. Um, she was selling around 100,000 copies of each of her albums there, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but there are only 8 million people in Quebec, so that's the equivalent of going like quadruple platinum there. And at the same time, those albums were also still doing well in um, Benelux in France. So the record company suits in the U.S. did um, actually notice this. And her strategy did work. Um, um, so they brought her down to record her first English language album, which was this one. And they pulled out all the stops on this um, to help out Laura with the songwriting. They brought in Patrick Leonard. Um, who worked with Madonna, uh, Glenn Ballard, who worked with Alanis Morissette, um, Walter Anafesiev, uh, um, who worked with Celine Dion, and the heavy, heaviest hitter of all, um, Sam Waters from Color Me Bad. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, also, Dave, please come to Boston. Loggins wrote a song <laughs> on this for some reason. You just dropped that very casually, like he's not the most corny artist you named. Yeah, I know. I know exactly. <laughs> but and to promote it, there was a PBS special called From Laura With Love. And she did manage to get one hit single in the U.S. out of this, uh, which was called I Will Love Again. But it was a pretty minor hit, pretty forgettable. And she didn't want to tour in the U.S., so that probably hurt her. Um, but also, she just sounds way too much like Celine Dion. Wait I mean, a minute. So I she mean, wanted to make it be noticed in America, but she didn't want to tour America. That's a brilliant exactly, thing. exactly. I I don't know why, but she just didn't want to. <laughs> but um, I mean, she sounds enough like Celine Dion, where they could have just titled this album Celine Dion, because I mean, that's basically what this is. I mean, we already have a Celine Dion in the U.S. I mean, why do we need another? No, we don't. We really yeah. Don't. And even though this was in English, it did do much better in the Francophone countries. It went to number one in France, and she basically just gave up on the English language market after that. Um, she put out one English language album in the 2000s, um, but it was basically like a contractual obligation. Um, she didn't really want to do it. Um, but if you've heard Celine Dion be before, you know what this sounds like. I do think it's funny that she consciously uh, basically did a big fuck you to the Benelux countries. That just cracks me up. It's like, eat shit, Luxembourg. Fuck off, Netherlands. <laughs> Lick my balls, Belgium. It's like, that wouldn't even occur to me that those countries would be... It's like, I gotta get out of this little shit burg, you know, fan base I've built in Brussels. I gotta hop the plane. I gotta hop the Concorde over to Montreal and make it big yeah i know i know exactly <laughs> it just strikes me as funny which uh, which is also kind of bigoted on my part i suppose but um you know I, it's funny though you mentioned montreal and i went to montreal in 04 i think it was and i don't recall 
hearing any music there whatsoever that was like, oh, this is French Canadian music. I'm sure I, it's probably just because I didn't, you know, didn't make when, it. Up. When I went in 92, I do remember hearing some stuff and it was basically like Celine Dion type stuff. Well, I'm sure I heard it. It, but it may have actually been Laura Fabian. I, I don't remember it ever like, you know, being absorbed into my consciousness though. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's because we went there with the kids and they were babies at the time and all that. So whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, we're at number one. Uh, Indeed. Let's do this. Here we go. Um, Number one is Alain Souchon with Aura du um, Paparquette. 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 Okay. Yeah, French. I know my French. Translated, <laughs> that means flush with the daisies. And uh, Souchon was born French-Moroccan, but moved to France when he was a baby, probably because it wasn't a good period of time to be, like, you know, native French in the North African countries um, in the 50s and 60s. But um, he was uh, an established artist at a pretty early age. He wrote the theme to... Francois Truffaut's Love on the Run in 1978. Ooh, okay. And he had his greatest success in 1993 with uh, Foulet Sentimental, um, neither of which you're probably any more familiar with than I am. Um, You may know the movie, but I don't certainly don't know the song. But I was kind of pleasantly surprised by this. This is sort of like chanson music mixed with light trip hop. And it's not that bad. The song that um, was out at the time was called uh, Talier La Zone, and it's pretty good. Um, He's basically crooning over the top of weird synths and acoustic guitar. This basically sounds like Vertical Horizon if they were good and had like 10 times more feeling in their music instead of just a bunch of droned out studio boredom. Yeah. They actually had talent. Um, Alternately, it also sounds a little bit like an updated French-speaking Al Stewart or Ian Matthews, sort of. Okay, okay. Only with more modern instruments. Um, the album cover is funny because it has Souchon in a white shirt and jeans, uh, but not a good white, not like a white T-shirt. Think like, like something a little less than the pirate puffy shirt from Seinfeld. <laughs> okay, okay. It's not quite like that, but in that vein. And blue jeans, so that's not necessarily a good look in the first place. And but he's standing on a couch like magisterially uh, while being preened over by out of focus models on the couch. So it's almost like it has to be a joke. I mean, it, it seems like it was a joke that didn't necessarily wasn't very well executed. Like, <laughs> here's the sex god, Alange Souchon, along with all his, you know, women that that, you know, want to be with him and stuff like that. I think it's a joke. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe not. I mean, if it isn't, then I applaud his uh, his uh, manliness. But um, I didn't mind this. Uh, so right on, Al- Alain uh, Souchon. It was not bad. Yeah. Um, well, since he mentioned Love on the Run, I have definitely heard one of his songs because um, that was like the final version. That was like the final chapter of the um, Antoine Duanel movies, which kind of started at four, 400 Blows and followed the same character into the 70s so i i have heard that song 
Eddie what, do you, what do you think is the best French movie ever made? Oh, God. Um, it's hard to say. Um, is, Wages the... of, is Wages of Fear French? That is a French movie, yeah. Okay. That's good. That, that yeah, probably fe- would be... I mean, I don't think of that as a French movie because it takes place entirely in Brazil, but it is a French movie. So I, I probably would pick that. By the same token, Rafifi takes place in France as a French-speaking movie, but was made by an American director. So I don't know if that counts. Right. Yeah. Um, but see, but I mean, I like. I mentioned the Antoine Duanel movies. I, I like all those. Um, let's see, um, Masculine Feminine, um, which was by Godard. He directed that one. That one's pretty good. Um, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie that's also good but pretty weird but yeah i'm trying to think of the one the famous one with uh uh gene seberg and um oh uh, breathless 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 is good i like yeah that's that's godard there too yeah that's good that was before he got weird yeah, um, his, his that would sixty stuff is pretty weird. But that would have seemed weird at the time because it was, you know, different style than what people were used to in that period. Um, I don't know. I posed the question and now I can't even think of my own answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna pick out <laughs> the weird ones. Are like um, they used to when Epics, um, Epics Drive In was a was a channel for a while on like low like if you bought the most basic form of uh like cable you would get that and Mm -hmm. now just basically another epics channel but at first they showed all kinds of bizarro shit like filipino movies and and like french porno movies basically and there's one director on there i can't remember his name who made some of the most bizarre shit and i just it was not good at all but it was like french porno vampire movies and stuff that were just oh okay okay so yeah so i'm (laughs) i'm nominating that Oh, okay. Right. So, but yeah, I pose the question now. I don't even have my own answer, so I don't even know. <laughs> okay. All right. But that does it for this week. What are we doing next week? Um, well, we're doing something a little bit different for the next one. We're doing a um, a year end list from um, Village Voice magazine's um, Paz and Jop um, critics compilation from. 1997 so okay. that would be robert chris Gow's thing right paz and job he started that right yeah yeah it's basically um he does like what they do with like the ap polls for football where he gets like everybody's ballots and gives them points and ranks them every year so it's just like a compilation of a bunch of charts so um what the critics liked the most in 1997. Why, why did you pick 97? Um, well, we hadn't done 97 before. And um, when I looked at the chart, I mean, it's, I mean, there are a lot of solid albums on there. So as good as, um, as, as good as Andrea Bocelli's Ari Sacre. <laughs> um, better than that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll do that next week. We'll go back two years. That's normally we have a little bit more space between the years, but that's okay. I think it'll be a lot, you know, quite a bit different. So, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it shall work. All right. Well, 
I appreciate everybody listening. I was kind of disappointed in this choice. This didn't work out the way I hoped, but they're not <laughs> okay. all they're not all going to be award winners. So, um, so vive la France. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you later. Yep. Au revoir.